0: The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, thank you that we can sing those words, yet not I, but Christ and me. Lord, we thank you. For the work that he has done, Lord, to reconcile us to you. We thank you for the call that he has put on our lives to, Lord, that we might hear his voice and follow it. Lord, and we thank you that you, through your spirit, Lord, are present with us every step along the way. And that, Lord, it is you alone that, that truly brings transformation to our lives, Lord, as we walk this physical life that you've given us here on this earth. Lord, we recognize that we are lacking. Um, we stray from the path often. We forget you. We forget what you've promised. We forget the call that you've put on our lives. And, Lord, we need to frequently return. So, Lord, as we um, consider this text this morning and what it means to walk in your calling, Lord, would you help open our eyes to see that? Lord, would you open our hearts, our lives to experience something of you and what it is to walk in a manner worthy of your calling? Lord, this is something that you must do initially and you must sustain in us. So, Lord, we are dependent on your grace and mercy to do that. For us this morning and as we go forward. So, Lord, we uh, give this morning to you and, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ball is life. Who's heard that phrase? You, and I, you maybe I say ball is life and you're like, football or football or basketball? This is a, a frequent phrase that is used in our culture to capture some kind of uh, priority of one's life. When we say ball is life, that something about that sport or what we're talking about if if I use basketball, for example, something about the sport of basketball, my life revolves around that. That is at the center point. And all of my life and how I organize it revolves around that is the central point. It impacts how you practice. It impacts how you eat and drink. It impacts, it impacts when you rest, when you go on vacation. It impacts your schedule. It impacts what you say yes to, what you say no to. Everything revolves around a claim like that. Now, I recognize all of us might not say the same thing, that ball is life, but you could take anything else and insert that in there. You could say family is life. Perhaps adventuring is life. Um, None of us say this, but we live this way. Maybe you say work is life, right? We can insert anything in there, and whatever becomes the central focus of our life, everything in it orbits around that idea or that concept, and it reveals something to us about the story that we're telling about our own lives, and in that, there's a question of, of who's writing the story? Are we inserting something into the middle of our life, and are we writing a story and building a narrative around that? Or if we step to the side, as a Christian, is God at the center of that? Is God writing the story and building the things around which our life, uh, that which is most important? What is our default way of life? What is the manner in which we walk that flows from that? And are we looking to God for meaning, or are we creating meaning for ourselves? So when we come to the Christian life, what we want to look at is the way, of, uh, the way of life, what it means to walk as a Christian. But before we can talk about what it means to walk, how that gets lived out and displayed, we've got to look at something more central to that. We've got to look at who God is. And then we've got to look at the story that he's writing, and then most specifically, what is his calling on our life? So as I have the opportunity to preach, um, which comes up here and there, I'll be working through a number of sections found in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, and be considering the Christian way of life, and how we are to walk in light of the gospel realities that have been secured for us in Christ so some of the topics we'll consider is this morning, walking in God's calling. In future weeks, we'll look at walking in the new self, walking in love, walking in the light, walking in spiritual wisdom. So we'll look at that. But this morning, this, this one sits at the very center, and it's, it's the focal point for which we need to understand how do we live or how do we walk a manner that's worthy to God And we need to understand something about walking in God's calling. Because if we miss the calling, then we will miss everything that flows from that. And so Ephesians, just as we kind of jump in in the middle of the book here, Ephesians was likely written during Paul's first Roman imprisonment imprisonment around 60 A.D. The letter is addressed to the saints who were in Ephesus And this was a letter that was likely circulated to the churches in Asia Minor, which would be uh, roughly the same area as modern-day Turkey. And so this this letter would be targeted towards uh, the city of Ephesus, the church of the Ephesians, and then likely circulating, going out into that region around, and obviously we have it here today, so it kept circulating in some great ways. But with this, this letter is divided into two parts, and this is common with some of Paul's letters. But if you take chapters 1 through 3, that is his theology. That's where he is building an argument, telling us something about who God is and what the gospel is. And then as we look at the second part, Ephesians 4 through 6, this is the application. What are the implications of God's work for the Christian life? So we're a little bit of a disadvantage in that. We're just jumping into chapter 4. And so a lot of this initial uh, sermon for this series and what's to come, is we're going to have to refer back to a number of things that have come in chapters 1 through 3, and specifically, as we understand calling and the scope of what the letter of Ephesians is trying to do. So that's what we're going to be looking at, and that's where we're going. Um, So now, um, if you have a Bible, open up to Ephesians 4, and we'll read the text for this morning. It says this, One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The word of the Lord. So in considering this passage, I'm going to organize this message around three primary points. And so here's here's the first point. The calling of God is everything and changes everything. The calling of God Is everything and changes everything so in verse 1 we see it's really important to Paul that the church walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called and so Paul's heart and his desire is one that he wants to come alongside them and continually urge he's begging them he's appealing to the church to live up to the family name that they would walk in a worthy and honoring way that brings glory to God. So at first glance, and if we took this out of context, we might hear this charge and, and our response might be that we fill in the blank with what we think is appropriate of a worthy life. So what's it mean to walk in a manner worthy? We might fill that in, you know, I'm worthy if I am a good person. I'm worthy if I can do some good things, do more good than, than bad. Maybe I'm worthy if I'm true to myself. Maybe I'm worthy if I can show love and tolerance towards other people around me. Maybe I'm worthy if I can work hard and play hard and just enjoy life at its fullest. So those are some of the things that maybe just on our own, left to ourselves, we might fill in what it means to live a worthy life. But before we can understand what it means to walk in a a worthy manner, it's important that we think about the second part of the sentence. And it says, Worthy of what? Worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So, what does that mean? What is the calling that comes from God? To what have we been called? And so, we can think about this initially from a macro level and then kind of a micro level. On the macro level, once. Scholar commenting on this passage defines God's call this way. I found it a very helpful, succinct definition. He says, God's call is this. God's initiative in bringing humanity to the goal for which he intended it. So God's initiative in bringing humanity to the goal for which he intended it. So if we break that down, see, God's initiative. God is the primary actor. And humanity is a passive recipient. Creation is a passive recipient of God's action. So God is the one who is taking the initiative. So when God calls, he's taking the initiative. Second part here, bringing humanity to a goal. And here we see everything, all of history is moving in a direction towards a certain goal. Creation and humanity were created with an end in mind. And as humans, we all set goals, and we adjust to it on the fly when they don't work out exactly the way that we set out the goal. But God, he has ordered all of the universe, all of the cosmos, in such a way that it will go as he intends, right? He has a goal, an end that he's moving toward, and we see for which he intended it. And here the book of Ephesians, if you read those first few chapters, we come across some shocking theology or doctrines, but we see the doctrine of, of God's sovereign care, his predestination, his election, his choice. We're confronted with the will of God that he is doing something and working and moving towards an end that he sees fit. He has purposes and plans that are beyond our full comprehension. These plans are above our pay grade, and one of the hard things as we come to the Bible is we come to the recognition that there is a God of the cosmos who reigns and is doing something, and we, whether we like it or not, we can't do anything about that because he exists above us. And Ephesians picks up on that theme and and pulls to this high view of God, and we see that When we come to God's call, it's God's initiative in bringing humanity to the goal for which he intended it, right? So that God is going to do what he's going to do. So that's the macro level that we think about this idea of God's call. But on the micro level, on the personal level, as it comes into our lives, God's call is his work to deliver an individual who was once dead in trespasses and sins in which they once walked. God's call is to come and deliver man from following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. God's call comes, and we see that in this language that Paul is using, this is um, in Ephesians 2, in this language that he's using, that there's something about God's call. We've got to recognize that there is a spiritual realm and a spiritual reality and things that are happening that we are not always mindful of or aware of. And So God's call is entering into the complexities of that spiritual reality, entering into the complexity of the human heart. And it's in this that God's call is what effectively takes someone or something that is dead and then he makes it alive. He breathes life into it. So God's call is what effectively makes someone alive together with Christ. But more than just making alive and setting free to live however they want, we see his call also raises up this person and seats them with Christ in the heavenly places, seats them with God in heaven. And we see that this call also is how he shows the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. So God's call enters and, and, and confronts our individual lives in a specific way and calls us and moves us to something that God gives life and then points towards a certain kind of future. So God's calling is helpfully portrayed, as if you go and look at Ephesians 1.16, and it says this, uh, as, pray, as Paul is praying for God's call upon the Ephesians, Paul says this, and I think it summarizes calling, the concept of calling well. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. As we look at this, Paul, if he, Ephesians has two of, I think, Paul's greatest prayers for the church that summarizes his heart and really God's heart for his people. And so, Paul is praying that God would effectually call his people in a way that their eyes would be open, the eyes of their heart would be open to receive spiritual wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of him, that we would know not just in our head in a knowledge sense, but we would also know in our heart the hope to which he has called us. And he defines that, uh, that hope, a hope that is certain, a hope that is guaranteed of the riches of his glorious inheritance a hope that sees the glory and the beauty of God and all the blessing that comes being associated in relationship with him, and a hope that sees the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards those who believe, not just his, his power to do whatever he wants, but his power for his people, to be for them, to walk with them, to care for them. So Paul, he's open, he's, he, he, or he's, he's praying, he's, he's pleading, that the church, that the Ephesians, that we would see God's call on our lives. That we would have eyes open to see it and to see the beauty of him. So this, this is what Paul is praying for. So as, as we come back to Ephesians f- verse 4-1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So, as Paul is urging us to walk in a manner worthy of this calling, as we go and see uh, where it says, to which you have been called, again, this idea that we opened with, the verb here is passive, meaning that it is God who calls, not us. And because he is called, he is the one who will give us a spirit. And through this calling, God will make it possible for the first time to actually walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now, does this mean that upon the moment of are receiving this calling, that we will automatically, perfectly, consistently walk in a manner worthy? No, not necessarily. But we, we think about calling, we think about this work of regeneration. This is the beginning point in which a Christian can actually walk in a way that is pleasing and honoring and worthy to God. And without the calling, regenerative work of God... We'll be left to our own efforts. And It'll be impossible to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And so, for anyone who is a Christian, we are, or for anyone just in this world, in order to walk in a way that is pleasing to God, there's something that needs to be, a work that needs to come and change our hearts, change our lives, our eyes be open to the reality of God, to live in relationship with him. So, In one sense, calling is the beginning of God's work taking root in one's life. But in another sense, calling is also what we are moving towards, right? So calling is a beginning work that God starts something. But with a start, something must continue, right? And so calling is what we are moving towards. Calling is also future-oriented. God has called us and changed us, or changed everything through the work of Christ. Yet we still long and hope for the day in which the promises of the calling will be realized. We wait for the day when we can personally and tangibly experience the blessing of the calling. The day that we will have a resurrected body. The day that we will enter into a permanent physical reality of the new heaven and new earth. The day when we will live face to face before God for all eternity. Experiencing the joy of his presence as adopted sons and daughters. Though calling is the beginning of God's work in a Christian's life, God's calling is also what continually guides the Christian along the way. In one sense, calling is the recognition of his voice and the strong desire or thirst to hear his voice again and again and again again. And to not be filled or satisfied, but but to long to hear the voice of God. To be led by and reassured of what he has promised each step along the way. I think as we experience the, the call of God, it's experienced in a manner of what's depicted in John 10. Where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So as we think about calling, it's just not religious speak for something we need to believe, but calling is actually inherently relationally driven. We hear the voice of God, we hear the voice of Christ, we are his sheep, and we follow. Something that he says is true and compelling and rich and deep and warm. And it draws us to him. This is how we experience the calling of God. So if we think, again, of calling or theology, just in cold terms, we'll totally miss the call. Because the call is relational. The call is to a relationship with God and to follow him and to live in a manner that God has determined in the way that God says is best, trusting him in that. Now, A number of us live kind of in this reality or or maybe plagued by this question. How do I know if I am called? How do I I determine that, right? And I think at the end of the day, there's a quick test and it's just a question we need to ask. Is the word of God attractive to us? Is it familiar? Is it compelling? Is it weighty? Does it land and and? drive or rise something in our heart, does it build longing for Him, for something greater? So how do you know if you're called? Do you long to know God? Do you long to know His words? Do you long to experience Him? And if the answer is yes, that's God's calling. You're hearing that. He's drawing you. And if the answer is no, then what is our action? We're to humble ourselves and to confess to God and say, "Lord, I don't desire you. I want to, but I don't. Lord, change my heart. Give me a hunger and thirst for your word. Break me. Help me to see the world, the life the way that you see it and that you will truly satisfy." That's that's how we move towards the calling. And again, if there's a question of, like, that's in the back of your mind, am I a Christian? How do I know if I'm a Christian? How do I test the fruit? How do I know if I'm called? Well, there's, we can have another conversation on that. But I encourage you, go read the book of 1 John. 1 John works as a test to help us say, is the spirit of God in me? Is God working? And to ask some of those hard questions of ourselves. Am I living a life that's honoring to God or a life with awareness of him? We'd love to talk more about that if that's a question that's plaguing you. But as we think about the fact that the sheep hear the voice of God and and he knows them and we follow him, he will never let them perish. He will not let one of them be snatched out of his hand. What we have been called to is certain. As we follow Christ, there is a certainty that he has got us. There's a security that comes in his call. Yet, at the same time, we must live with that calling in mind as a future reality to be obtained, to be fully realized, that we would live in a manner worthy of that calling to which we are headed. And so this calling from God is everything, and it changes everything, including everything about the manner in which we walk in this life. It changes our way of life. And so that's what we want to look at next, here next. So here's the second point. The calling of God transforms our way of life. The calling of God transforms our way of life. To be called is a glorious thing, but the reality is that many of us don't actually measure up to the calling. Many many of us struggle to, to walk in a manner worthy of this calling, in a manner befitting of our new identity and association with Christ. So for many of us, it might actually feel as if we are imposters, not living what he has called us to to be, to do. And we're aware of our failures, but we're unable to change our behaviors, our actions. To some extent, all Christians live in this reality, but to some extent, there's a a group of us Christians that live here more. (laughs) So a recent example that kind of illustrates this, um, there, in the, in the recent months, uh, there's been an up and coming professional basketball player, by the name of Ja Morant, who plays for the Memphis Grizz- Grizzlies. And in this, uh, he has had some recent difficulty in complying with the NBA code of conduct, c- code of conduct. Excuse me. And basically the NBA has expectations for all the players associated with its organization, right? That they would live and behave themselves in in a certain kind of way. So um, a month or so before the NBA playoffs, um, we're in the playoffs right now, this player posted an Instagram live video of himself partying and openly displaying a firearm, right? And so in, in response to this, uh, there was some public outcry for his recklessness and it resulted in him getting suspended by the nba for a number of games and some time off and in response to this you know the suspension is it's a significant warning right the nba is not not going to tolerate this they're not they don't like the association of this behavior with their organization but in this he comes out and you know as all people do in the modern world when you've been called on something you come out and you apologize and you say, and he recognized his need um, to get some help and to take some time off to get his head straight. And in all that, you know, you look at it and you're like, okay, good, that's a great response, right? Hopefully, hopefully something changes there. Hopefully something goes, comes out of this. Well, fast forward, um, just a couple weeks uh, after his team lost in the playoffs, a friend of his posted another Instagram Live video of them jamming to some music in a car, and again, he's caught in a video brandishing another, another firearm. So now on one hand, we just recognize that the legal possession of a firearm is not a crime. So in one sense, before the state, he's okay, as I understand it. Maybe there's details there that's different. But, but on the other hand, like I said earlier, the NBA has its own code of contact, conduct. And it has a brand that is trying to maintain. And this is not the kind of press and actions that are befitting of their standards that will continue to generate them money, right? We're working in a worldly scheme here, so not everything translates perfectly. But the question is this, why would this player, who is a sensational talent and a rising star in the league, not walk in a manner worthy of his NBA calling? Why would he not do that? By worldly standards, he has almost everything he could ask for on the horizon. Huge contract extension. You know, is anybody in here frustrated by the money that people get to make by just playing a stupid game, right? Huge money on the line, and he's one of those players where it keeps bumping and he's going to set the new trend for the, for the next player down the line. He's got a gigantic shoe deal on the line, which could set him up for life if he, if he nurtures that and cares for that shoe deal well. He's got promotional opportunities. He's got a solid team that can compete for a championship. He's the centerpiece of that. He's got all lights and attention on him. So why would he not comply with what the league is asking of him? Isn't this what all his life has been leading up to? Ball is life, right? as we look at this, something is missing and is preventing him from walking in a manner worthy of his MBA calling. He's repping the brand. He has everything to benefit from his association with the MBA, yet he is not able to walk according to their standards. Now, this only serves as an illustration. We're dealing in a worldly construct here. Now, we're going to switch over to more more of a, a, a spiritual context, but many of us who have grown up in the church experience something like this in the form of a a cultural Christianity in which we're in the church benefiting from the social capital of an association with the church. But in reality, we're not truly aligned. We're not actually walking in the manner worthy of the calling. We recognize some of the benefits of it, right? Uh, Another term that gets used for this is that's um, used some years back as carnal Christianity, right? I'm saved, and then I'm going to live and do whatever I want, but not actually walking in a manner that, that the Bible or that God says is right. And in the end, there's a number of people there in the church that they're repping the brand, but they seemingly lack a vision for what God has called them to in the immeasurable blessing of the future. The challenge of this is that many people approach the Christian faith desiring the benefits of the faith, but struggle to walk and live it out. A life that is not shaped by the calling has likely missed what the calling is all about. A life that is not shaped by the calling has likely missed what the calling is all about. So I, now want, I want to turn our attention to what this kind of life looks like, and how Paul encourages us to walk in it. So given that we are called, how then do we walk in a manner worthy of the calling? What does a worthy walk, a worthy way of life look like? So he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling, to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So here we see four things that kind of give us a picture of of what this walk looks like. He says, humility with all humility and gentleness. So this idea of humility is like lowliness, poor in spirit. Someone who is humble and small before God, right? This idea of gentleness is meekness. Someone who doesn't insist on their own way at all costs, but is surrendered to God and his will. So we see these twin terms of, of humility and gentleness. These are the two phrases that, are, that embody Christ himself when he, in Matthew 11, is, uh, describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. These two things are a package deal, and they describe the very heart of Christ. These characteristics are also what show up as a church. We've recently been in the Gospel of Matthew looking at the Beatitudes and the Sermon on Mount. This humility, this gentleness this poor in spirit, meekness, these are core and central to a Christian's life. So Paul is saying we are to walk in this way. And it's only through God's calling that he allows us to wait upon his will and his plans, right? To humbly, gently, meekly surrender ourselves to God, not forcing a path for ourselves. Secondly here, Paul says that This worthy walk is of patience, right? And patience is this idea of endurance, of constancy, of steadfastness and perseverance. And this is also an attribute that's used to describe God himself, right? Patience is something that shows up in the fruit of the Spirit. And in our calling, we can have patience because we are sure, we are certain of God's care and promises. So you see in both of these how God's promises change something about our character in the moment, that we don't have to go get stuff for ourselves. We can be patient. We can endure. We can wait because God is going to bring a gift. God is going to bless. And so that call helps give a rest that we can be patient. And we go on. He says, bearing with one another in love. This idea is bear or endure with one another in love. And ultimately, this is an extension of patience. But it's a patience that, that comes from love and not just a mere tolerance or putting up with someone, right? And so most of us can bear with someone in the sense that we can grit our teeth and just survive it, right? But here, this is something more. Fewer of us can do it that with an enduring spirit of love. Right? And so and we're in a relationship and someone's really hard and the situation is difficult that we want to deal with, we can endure with that Because what we remember is we actually have nothing to lose. (laughs) Maybe we lose something in that moment, right? We lose something, there's something that's annoying or nagging at us. But ultimately, through God's calling, we have nothing to lose at all. Because God has promised us, he has called us to something far greater. And that's the same spirit that he took on to patiently endure with us heathens, right? So we see that there's... This worthy manner of life bears with one another in love. And then lastly, this worthy manner of life is eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Right. So this idea of eager, is, it's diligent. We hasten to do, ones to do our best so that we can maintain, keep, guard, carefully attend to the unity of, that comes in the Spirit. The bond of peace, the, the peace that comes through our relationship with one another meaning that we are to eagerly and intentionally attempt to maintain unity with those who are in Christ. And you'll see in other parts of this book, this book is a lot about unity, that God to, came and made Jews and Gentiles, two different people far apart, made them into one people. So there's an eagerness for those in the church that, who are in Christ to maintain unity with our different backgrounds, right? Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rich, poor, all the different categories, that there is a unity that comes in Christ, and we are to be eager to maintain that, and to maintain a peaceful relationship in that. And our calling helps us to see what truly lasts beyond this life, right? There's only a few things that are going to last and pass to the other side. And I had one mentor, a friend of mine, he said, you know, there's only three things that last, God, his word, and people. Those are the only things that are eternal and will last into the next age. And so our calling helps us to see what truly lasts. And so we work hard to maintain those relationships. We are eager for the unity, eager to pursue that well, to pursue peace here and now, because that's going into the next life, right? So as we consider what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, there are a couple aspects of this calling and how it transforms our way of life. And so as we look at all, all these things together, the calling of God, it transforms our character. When we truly understand what God has provided for us in Christ and what will be provided in the future, we can rest in the reality that God is for us and truly wants to provide everything that we need and more, right? Through his spirit, our hearts are transformed to find contentment in God alone. Which includes contentment in his way of life, right? His laws, his rules, his statutes. Where there's contentment in God, there's contentment in the way that he says that we live. And through that, our character is transformed. And part of this character transformation is that we are freed from the fallen internal need to seek our own glory. We are freed to seek our own good apart from God. And instead, we are able to give ourselves to others and their needs. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling is to walk as an image bearer who lacks nothing. And is free to freely give himself to another. And where does that come from? Who is God? God lacks nothing. And what has he decided to do? He has freely given himself to others. So that's our image bearing call, to walk as God walks is in that, and so in this, the calling of God, that future reality of what he's doing, what he's moving us towards, that the calling of God transforms our character. But then as you think about this, not only does the calling of God transform our our individual character, But it also transforms, when you put these people together in the same place, it transforms a community too, right? So that's the second thing. The calling of God transforms our community. So the whole letter of Ephesians, much like many New Testament texts, is written directly not to just individual Christians, but rather to a community of Christians, the church. We were never meant to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of God apart from or outside the church community. So when we think about humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eagerness to maintain unity and peace, all are done in the context of a community of people. So when we think about this calling, this calling is not just how does Bryant get called and go to heaven. No, this is a calling, this is a community calling in which we are to receive and work out together, to walk in together. This text is telling us how we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, and the point is simple, that we cannot walk in this calling outside of the church community. And so um, this is not a critique on our church that most everyone in this church loves this church and pours themselves into this church. But we need to ask the question of ourselves. And maybe there's some of us in here that need to ask this of ourselves. We need to check ourselves. Are you all in with the church? Are you all in? Because that seems that that's God's plan right here. That there's something about the calling that's being worked out in a community. So if we're going to step apart from that, there's a great danger that we might actually miss out on that calling. And, there's also a great danger that we might be prohibiting someone else's growth in the church because we might be able to be in there to serve, to give, to help, to love in a way that brings transformation and assures them of their calling. So this is a question we need to ask of ourselves, and this, this, is, this plagues the modern world in that the, the, the quick ability that we jump and listen to a sermon and call it church online, the, the ability that we go and jump from one place to another all neglecting the community that God has built and is central to our calling. So again, this is not a critique that I love this church and this, this, this church, I think, greatly loves and values each other. But maybe some of us in here need to hear this. And some of us need to rethink, do I see the church as central to my calling? So the calling of God transforms our way of life It transforms our character and our community, and it transforms way more than that, and we'll talk about more of that in future weeks, but but the calling of God transforms our way of life. So in that, we just received some instruction on how to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. But the last question I wanna look at is, why are we to walk in a manner worthy? What end or purpose does this walk serve? So that's where we go to the third and last point here. The hope of our calling is unity with the one God of the cosmos. So the hope of our calling is unity with the one God of the cosmos. So verses 4 to 6 he says, There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So seven times the word one is used here, right? One, one spirit, one body, one hope, one Lord. And when, we, when you hear Lord there, that's Paul's language for Christ, one Christ, one Savior, right? So specific, he uses that language of Jesus himself. So one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, and here built into this, we see something of the beauty of these categories of the Triune God, right? So we see something in the Triune God in each person's connection to their 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 work or their ministry or their role that they hold within the Trinity. But we see one one Spirit and one Body, right? There's a unity of the Spirit and a unity of the Church, and the Spirit is present in that. So Paul hi- highlights that unity. It comes in the Spirit. We see one, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We see something about our confession of faith that comes in Christ and the baptism by the means which we are united with him, restored to the Father. So we see something about the role and the work of Christ. And then the last one, one God and Father, right? Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So we see something about the Father who reigns supreme over all of this, Right, and, and in some degree is kind of calling the shots into the, into the top. And in this, we come and see that there is a complex and beautiful reality of a triune God, and that there's a diversity here in the persons and the work, right? Just as we looked at, of the Spirit, the Son, the Father. There's a diversity there. Yet, also, there's a unity there. And we see that all these things listed point to a greater reality and to the oneness of real, that reality, namely the one God of the cosmos. And it's interesting here when we take this language of, of one, there's an illusion and a reference, I think, that goes back to Deuteronomy 6.4, uh, six, and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? So here, there's, there's a unity, there's one God. There's one God, there's one reality, there's one way of life, and everything comes underneath him, and everything is united under him. And it points to his exclusivity, that there is no other way outside of this God. And we were created for God to walk in the way in which he determines his best. In Ephesians 2, um, 8 through 10 captures this. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. Why has God, so in this we need to ask, why has God graciously saved us, right? So he's saved through, through um, by grace through faith. Why has he saved us? Catch this, verse 10. For, for we are his workmanship Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So, as we consider this text in, in the greater context of Ephesians, it's important to acknowledge that God isn't merely talking about just the unity of Him and the church, but there's a larger and greater greater reality that exists. That all things will be united to the reality of God and His way of life. So, God is concerned about the reconciliation of mankind, but as we look at some other places in Ephesians, he's also working things out on a grander scale. God is working out human reconciliation, yes, but he's working out a cosmic reconciliation. So, an often repeated term term throughout Ephesians is this idea of mystery, right? And this idea of mystery is that in the story of God and the biblical plan of salvation, God has progressively... Unveiled a wonderful mystery, which ultimately culminates in the person and work of Christ. And while writing these prison epistles, um, and particularly we see this theme, idea of mystery, show up in Ephesians and Colossians, which were both as presumed to be written at the same time, the same time that Paul is imprisoned. Paul is dialed in on this glorious reality of the mystery. Why, why is God calling? Why is God working? What is this cosmic reconciliation? In Ephesians 1, 7 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him Things in heaven and things in earth on earth. What is the mystery of his will? To unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. So we get a glimpse of how God is working this cosmic reconciliation, uniting all things in heaven and earth. But it actually goes farther than this, right? So we're kind of looking at God reconciles man, and he's reconciling things between heaven and earth to bring together. And then Ephesians 3.8, we see God's plan for the church. He says... To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. What is the plan, right? Like, what's his plan? Who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, for anyone who's been in our, what we believe, our membership class, this is a passage that gets referenced in one of the first weeks about the church, right? So maybe some of you sat in this and and this is fresh on your mind. But what is the mystery of God? Or what is the mystery that God has revealed? That God is using the church to display his manifold wisdom, to make known to the spiritual realms the rulers and authorities in heavenly places to make his will, his purposes, his wisdom known to them. So when we think about this idea of reconciliation, we want to step back and see this reconciliation is a cosmic reconciliation. That there's a whole lot more that God is doing in the world, in the cosmos, to bring glory to his name. There's a whole lot more that he's reconciling than just me in my pitiful little circumstance though he loves me in my pitiful little circumstance, right? The end goal of God's calling and his saving work is the uniting of himself with his people. And all this is being done before a watching audience in the heavenly realms. This cosmic reconciliation is more, the, more, uh, is about more than us. It's about the glory of God and the greatness of his divine plan. We would do well if we only took a moment to realize how small we are in the grand scheme of things, And yet, how the God of the cosmos has delighted to call such a small and undeserving people for himself. For some reason, according to God's good good pleasure, we have been given a significant role in this cosmic drama. And this calling, this calling, it should blow our minds. It should drop our jaw to the floor. It should be in disbelief. Why? because it's inconceivable that we should be granted such a glorious future by such a gracious God. And if only we understood and were humbled by the reality of God's calling, then the problems and the things of earth would pale in comparison. The hope of our calling is unity with the one God of the cosmos, in which he is uniting into one, everything into one reality, into one way of life. So given this calling, what's expected of us? How are we to go about walking? Walking in God's calling is pursued by forward-looking hope. So walking in God's calling is pursued by forward-looking hope. The moment we forget this calling or or what Christ has accomplished and secured for us, in uniting us to the everlasting God of the cosmos. The moment we forget that calling is the moment that we return to living in our old way of life and walking in a manner that is worthy according to our own standards, not His. So we're to continually remember this calling by a forward-looking hope and faith that one day will be an unimaginable face-to-face reality. So in God's calling, He has begun a work but this calling is also forward-looking, and it hinges on the character and the word of God. And what God promises and secures is sure. We can hold on to that. So we're to walk in God's calling by pursuing a forward-looking hope. Secondly, walking in God's calling is empowered by God's transcendence and imminence, And this comes as this last part of this verse. This is where we'll look to close. Ephesians 4, 6, it says, we have one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, right? Overall, God transcends and rules over all things. For those who are called, they can find rest in the sovereign reign of God and that everything will go according to his plan. Now, for some of us, that's unnerving because we like to be in control. But we have a God who's in control and he's good and he's for us. And So we can find rest in that, He transcends and reigns over all things. But also we see that he is through all and in all. So if he was only a transcendent God, he would be set apart, not present, right? But here he is through all. He is in all. God is imminently present through and in all things. For those who are called, they can find rest and comfort in God's presence. Even as things don't make sense or perhaps aren't playing out the way that they want things to play out. He is there amidst them to meet us and to remind us of his promises. So Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. God's calling is what makes it possible to walk in a manner worthy. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.